You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, as we've gathered here together uh, in this place and as those who have gathered that are on the live stream and will watch this sometime in the future, sitting from their home and watching YouTube, I pray, dear God, that you would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth, Lord, and may we be set free to do the work that you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we launch into the seven keys, now one of the things I wanted to mention, as I talk about the seven keys to effective evangelism, I want to be very clear that I am not presenting something that is different or in opposition to the Michigan Growth Plan. Many of you are familiar with GROW, talking about the cycle of evangelism. This is just looking at it from a different angle uh, and as I am picturing it and is uh, to supplement what you already have from a Michigan Conference core. And I would encourage you, if you are not familiar with the GROW cycle here in Michigan, to to look at the Personal Ministries website and familiarize yourself with it. Familiarize yourself with Cameron DeVacher and Mark Howard. And I might even encourage you to make sure that you have your church uh, in some kind of a training program with them because the principles I'm talking about are the same principles that they're advocating, just looking at it from a couple of different angles and views. But as I start this morning, I want to reemphasize this whole issue of a misunderstanding of the Gospel Commission. And I talked about this the first day. We will remember that we talked about the Gospel Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And there in Matthew chapter 28, uh, Jesus commits his church to this ragtag group of 11 men. And he tells them to go into all the world, to make disciples, to preach, to teach, to baptize, or to teach and to baptize. And we learned that of those what appear to be four commands, only one of them is an imperative command. And that one imperative command is make disciples. Go, teach, and baptize is how we make disciples. When the entire emphasis of evangelism and church growth is on baptizing, and please don't misunderstand, I believe baptisms are a measure of health in the church. I'm not afraid of those measures. But we need to understand, if baptism is the ultimate goal and only baptism, we are not fulfilling the gospel commission. Okay. The call of God is that we make disciples. All right, The challenge when, when baptizing is the ultimate plateau moment is that once we baptize someone, we then think we have no responsibility to them. And that is a major mistake. Uh, that would be the equivalent of saying the ultimate experience for a mother is to deliver the baby. And if we treated new members like or if we treated new babies like we treat new members often, and that is we've baptized them, 
our work is done. Then what we would have is mothers delivering babies and setting them in the maternity ward and hoping someday they'll grow up and they'll start eating regular food on their own and then eventually they'll walk out of the hospital healthy and well-to-do about living human life. And some of you are smiling at me because you know that that's ridiculous, but that's what we do with new people in the church. We, we baptize them and we, we, we kind of pat them on the back and say, hey, good luck, hope you survive. That's not the call of God. The call of God is to make disciples. Uh, Tom Rainer wrote a book uh, and the book is entitled Simple Church. I don't advocate everything in that book, but it would be a good book for you to read and here's the reason why. Uh, Tom Rader studies those churches that are growing the fastest uh, around the United States. Uh, this is churches, broadly speaking, not just Adventist churches. And this is what they found. Those churches that are growing the fastest have the clearest path toward visiting the church to becoming a full disciple of Christ. Meaning people know what it means to become a disciple. Meaning that people walk in the doors and they understand clearly what the next steps are in becoming a member and then from becoming a member, getting involved and becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the decisions that these churches make are very, very difficult decisions because they, they craft a model that does not allow for anything to be an impediment to the path of discipleship. In fact, one of the statements in that book, which I have in a different presentation is, our churches are cluttered. There are many obstacles to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so how do we declutter? And by the way, that requires us to ask some very difficult questions because that may require us to make some changes. And let me be very, very clear when I use that because then people say, oh, where's this guy going? We're not talking about changes to the 28 fundamental beliefs. We're not talking about changes to the pure word of truth. What I'm talking about is there are things that we do in our church that are not necessarily things that we should be doing or have to be doing, if that makes sense. And I could expand upon that. If you have a question, you can come ask me. Let me give you the simplest illustration. Um, uh, before, well, even while I was, uh, when I first became an Adventist, I was working at McDonald's. That's what I did before uh, the Lord called me into ministry is I managed restaurants. By the way, I think it should be a requirement of life to work in fast food. If you can deal with people in something as simple as food, you can deal with anything. Uh, but um, I was working at McDonald's when McDonald's did something that was outside of their core business. What is the core business of McDonald's? And I know, you know, and I'm, by talking about McDonald's, I'm not advocating to go to McDonald's. Don't misunderstand my point here. But what was, what was McDonald's bread and butter, so to speak? How did McDonald's come into existence? Hamburgers, fries, milkshakes, fast. Okay, simple. Okay, when I was working at McDonald's, from point of order to delivery of sandwich, three minutes and 35 seconds. If you did not achieve it in less than that three-minute time, then you were slow. Okay? When I worked at McDonald's, McDonald's wanted to get into the gourmet sandwich business. And so they came up with this sandwich called the Arch Deluxe. 
The Arch Deluxe took more time to prepare. It was a more complicated sandwich and it used ingredients that were different than the ingredients of all the rest of the sandwiches. All the sandwiches at McDonald's are basically a manifestation of the same ingredients just in a different package. Okay? The Arch Deluxe has been labeled, when you look it up, as one of the greatest corporate failures ever because it was outside the core of what McDonald's is. When people go to McDonald's, they are not expecting gourmet sandwiches. When people go to McDonald's, they're expecting burgers, fries, shakes, fast. And when fast food is no longer fast, then it's just food. And people come to McDonald's for fast food that's cheap. And the Arch Deluxe was neither fast nor was it cheap. We had to get new equipment, all kinds of stuff. Why am I telling you this story? Because in the church, our business is to make disciples. And if that is not what we are about, we will not have success. Because that's not who we are. Does that make sense to everyone? All right. So with that, let's get into the seven keys to church growth, seven keys to evangelism. All of these are principles. I want to emphasize the word principle. I many times have people come talk to me. In fact, a young man came and talked to me after the first session. I don't see him here today. But this young man came and talked to me and and he was asking me, he says, listen, I, I go out and sometimes I hold up a sign asking people to repent and I, I, I talk to people about these things and I, I do this and I pass out literature. And, and then he asked me, do you think that's the right thing to do? My answer was, well, anything you're doing is the right thing to do. Who am I to tell you what to do? Because now we're talking technique and methodology. Now, may there be more effective means of reaching people? Most certainly. But am I going to discourage someone who's out there actually trying to talk to people and win people for the gospel message? No, I'm not going to discourage that. Now, if you ask me the question, are there more effective means? Sure there are. But I don't want to discourage you from getting out there. And let me tell you, I, I mean, and I'll tell you a very brief story. So when I, when I graduated from Andrews University with my undergraduate degree, you have to understand, I did not grow up Seventh-day Adventist. And so I, I didn't know what church life was all about. And so it was 2001. I had only been an Adventist for six years. And now I go to Bloomington, Illinois, and I'm the pastor of the church. And I'll never forget, we moved into our home. Never forget the address, 2308. Rainbow, rainbow, uh, rainbow court. And, and I unpacked all my stuff and I put my books on the shelf and they looked all nice and I organized my desk and I sat down at my desk and my wife came and she came in and she says, what's wrong? Because I had a very disturbed look on my face. And I looked at her and I said, I have absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to do. And so I called up Robert Wagley. Many of you probably remember Robert Wagley. Robert Wagley was the evangelist that I served under in Field School of Evangelism in Lansing. And I called up Robert and I said, Robert, 
I went to school for four years and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not being critical of Andrews University. It has nothing to do with that, so don't take my statement out of context. I said, I have no idea what to do. And so he started talking to me about the cycle of evangelism. And so we were in a small church, and we ended up at this church in Bloomington, Illinois. For those of you that know, Bloomington, Illinois is the home of Illinois State University, and it is also the corporate headquarters for State Farm. And so prior to my arrival, the church, over the course of two years prior to my arrival, three years prior to my arrival, the church had an attendance of about 100. And six families were all moved by State Farm at one time. So attendance went from 100 to 50. And then within that 50, you see, when we start getting smaller like that, that means we're closer to one another and when we're closer to one another, we fight with one another. By the way, we should be close to one another. And sometimes, like a family, we may not agree on everything, but we need to love each other. But what happened there is, is, is that they fought with one another and they decided half of them to leave. So the church that was 100 was now 25. And by the time I got there, the regular attendance was about 15 people. And so now... I've got this evangelistic strategy. I know what I'm going to do. And I start talking to the leadership in the church. And so, again, and what I'm talking about now is we started going door to door to deliver Bible study cards. Was it the most effective means? I have no baptismal testimonies from our door to door delivery. And by the way, when I say we, and I know there's some pastors here, when I say we, we was me and my wife, okay? And what happened? Somebody then asked in the church, hey, what are you doing, pastor, on Tuesday afternoons? Well, that's when we go door to door and we pass out Bible study cards. Pastor, can I come with you? Absolutely, come on with me. And before you know it, we have 510 Five, ten people that are out going door to door. And again, I don't have some amazing testimony where we met somebody uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch and they were waiting for us and we studied Isaiah 53 with them and then we went down to the river and baptized them. I don't have that kind of a story. But what happened was is the momentum of moving forward on something that may not been entirely effective bonded the church together. And then the church was committed to mission. And as the church was committed to mission, the Lord did some amazing things. And that church over the course of three years went from 15 to in attendance to about 85 in attendance. The Lord did some miraculous thing and it's all glory and honor to him. It's not because I'm smart or know what to do. It's because God knew what to do. Because remember, I sat at my desk saying, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And so even when we may not necessarily because we too often conversations around method and technique and I'm going to be talking about principles because the principles in flint and applied in flint may look very different than application in Detroit Michigan may look different than Houghton may look different may look different in Muskegon or Traverse City and most certainly will look different in Washington, D.C. So that's why we're going to talk principles. These principles are derived from the book of Acts and have been practically applied all over the world and have seen it work in a variety of capacities. 
So what is the first key when we talk about church growth and evangelism? The first, first key is spiritual renewal or spiritual revival. And as soon as I say that, some of you are saying, okay, that's too simple. What's the next key, Pastor? Because we need to get into the meat of this. If you bypass this key, we will never have true success in reaching people. I want that to sink in. E.M. Bounds, he was a Methodist preacher in the 19th century. He wrote a book called Power Through Prayer, and I want you to listen to his words. Now, you have to understand, he wrote in the 19th century, so I have some ladies here. He uses the word man over and over again. He's speaking general humanity. He's speaking of men and women. The trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or organization. God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than anything else. Men, women are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. God is looking for better women. What's the point? Those who have an attitude like Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. That's what God is looking for in the church today. Why is spiritual renewal so vital? The Laodicean message is often a misunderstood message. Revelation chapter 3, what is Jesus' problem with the Laodicean church? It's not a trick question. What's, what's, what's the problem that Jesus has with the Laodicean church? They're, they're lukewarm and somebody's saying they are not hot, they're not cold. And so <clears throat> we have this challenge of the Laodicean church. Now when we study church history, we are now living in the time of Laodicea. What is lukewarm? Okay, you're now you're making application, but literally speaking, what is lukewarm? What does that mean? Not hot, not cold. If you look up the dictionary definition, it will simply say tepid. In a very non-technical definition, what is lukewarm? How many, how many of you, what did you say? Go ahead comfortable. Now see, that's an interesting, you're making application, which is good. I think you'll, you'll see that your application is a good application. Does anybody like to drink warm drinks? Hot tea, hot Roma, okay, okay. hot water, very good. I want you to come with me to your kitchen. You have warmed your water in your kettle. You have gotten it to that temperature where it is too hot to drink. You put it in your tea bag or you put it in your glass with your lemon, whatever you're drinking, you mix your Roma. And because now that it's out, it's gone into the mug, it is beginning to become that perfect drinking temperature where it's warm enough that it almost feels like it's going to burn your tongue, but not quite, yet cool enough that you'll be able to taste your food later. And just as that happens, you get a phone call. And that phone call takes 20, 30 minutes. 
and now you come back to your drink. What has happened to your drink? What temperature is it now? Okay, now you've said something that we, many of us are saying lukewarm, but I want us to help to define the word lukewarm. So we're going to leave that drink on the table for a moment. How many of you, on a day where you've mowed the lawn or you've been working out in the garden, like to have a cold drink? Somebody's shaking their head. A cold drink. You like some ice in that drink. Okay, same thing. You get that water that is cooler, that will cool you, and you just go to take a sip of that that herbal iced tea that you've made that's just got the perfect amount of honey in it, and just as it's about to touch your lips, somebody calls you and you set it down on the table. And you come back to that now, and you've got your tea that was warm at one time, but it's no longer warm. Now you've got this cold drink that's no longer cold. What has happened to these two drinks? Okay, we, 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 and I hear everybody saying, it's lukewarm now, but what has happened to those drinks? What has happened to the liquid in those cups? What have they done? They have adapted. What have they adapted to? They have adapted to the surrounding circumstances of room temperature, and now they have become room temperature. And very non-technical terms, we have now defined lukewarm. Lukewarm is neither hot nor cold. It's just kind of... Blah. You, you put it in your mouth and, I mean, and I don't know about you, but Roma at room temperature, somebody's laughing. It's not a pleasant experience. But I don't want you to miss the point. What is lukewarm? Those liquids have adapted, or shall we use another word, compromised to the surrounding temperatures. What is the challenge with the Laodicean church? It has merely adapted to culture. It is no longer hot. It is no longer cold. It is simply the same and status quo. God says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. Interesting, I've had the opportunity to go to Laodicea. The ancient site of Laodicea had a challenge, and that was this. They didn't have a good water source. But not too far from Laodicea was Colossae and some surrounding towns. Colossae had a wonderful cold water source. And so the Laodiceans who were rich and in need of nothing, except water, built an aqueduct. And they built an aqueduct from Colossae to Laodicea to get some of that wonderful cold spring water from Colossae. Here's a challenge. They put it in the aqueduct, and by the time it arrived in Laodicea, what was it? It was lukewarm. It had simply adapted to its surroundings. But then not too far in the distance... Not too far in the distance is the town of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was a fascinating city because it was a healing center. Hierapolis had hot water springs. And 
It is believed, for example, that Cleopatra visited Hierapolis to soak in the waters of Hierapolis to help cure some of her dermatological issues. So the Laodiceans said, wow, we like that. We like, the, we like the hot water springs of Hierapolis. And so because they were rich and in need of nothing, except water, they built an aqueduct from Hierapolis to Laodicea and they bring out the hot water from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. But the problem is, while the water came out hot in Hierapolis, by the time it arrived to Laodicea, what's the problem? It's lukewarm. What is God saying to his church? And when we talk about his church, let us be clear. We're talking about the people. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a conference office. We're not talking about a union office, a division office, or the general conference. When he says in, and speaks to Laodicea, he's speaking to people. Me, he's speaking to. And what does he say to me? I wish you were hot. I wish you were like the warm, healing waters of Hierapolis, that by your presence, people would experience healing in their life. Or I wish you were cold, that when people were around you, it would be like a refreshing, soothing, cool drink on a hot summer day. But because you neither refresh the people around you, nor heal the people around you, and you simply have adapted to the culture around you, what does Jesus say? I spew you out of my mouth. Because he wishes we were hot or cold. And this is why I say to you, if we skip over spiritual revival and spiritual renewal in our churches, I don't care what techniques you follow, Somebody used the word worthless. We're not going to grow. We're going to actually fight. We're going to fight about technique. And so when a young person comes and tells us they're going door to door, telling people to repent and be baptized, we tell them that's not a good idea. You shouldn't be doing that. Has the church board authorized you to do that? Because when we are not fully submitted to Christ, well, we're just like the disciples on the journey to Calvary. What were the disciples consumed with in the journey to Calvary? What was the greatest argument they had in the journey to Calvary? Who's going to sit on the right? Who's going to sit on the left? Which can be summarized by one word, power. Who will be powerful? What happened with all 12 of them? One of them betrayed Jesus and sold him out. One of them denied him three times. Two of them still were concerned about who would be greatest, who would be on the right and the left. So intense was the argument that they involved their mom One of them doubted whether he had really been raised from the dead. And the rest of them abandoned Jesus in the garden to be by himself.
And you know what we can praise God for? Those are the guys he started the church with, so that means there's hope for me. I would encourage you in your own personal time to read through the book Acts of the Apostles, in particular pages 35 to 37, because something happened between who will sit on their right and left and Acts chapter 2 where it says they were in one accord in one place. And let us be clear, the word there, one accord, literally translated when you look it up in the lexicons and the dictionaries mean they were unanimous and uniform. What happened in that upper room? When you read what Ellen White talks about, what transformed now the 11 of them, submission, humility, confession, regret over the last three and a half years, spiritual revival happened to the 11 early disciples, the 11 apostles. By the way, it's an interesting note. What was the first business action of the early church? It's the first thing that the early church did. Pick the 12th. Let's put it in modern vernacular. They had nominating committee. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing thing? Just to test how consecrated they were, let's do nominating committee. Right? Because that's what happened, right? How many were nominated to serve as the 12th disciple? Two. Matthias and Joseph. Which means that some people were in favor of Matthias. And some people were in favor of Joseph. And here's the amazing thing. The Bible says they cast lots, which basically means they prayed and they voted. Who was chosen as the 12th disciple? Matthias. Where else in the Bible does it talk about Matthias? Nowhere else. Now be very, very careful. Be very, very careful because there are some scholars that get real. I don't have a better word for it. And folks, you have to understand, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a theologian. There are some scholars that get real cute with some song and dance. And they say the church moved ahead of what they should have done because Paul was supposed to be the 12th disciple or the 12th apostle. Be very, very careful. We have no scriptural evidence that that's the case. But why don't we ever hear about Matthias? Here's what I believe. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is trying to help us understand that this original nominating committee or this original vote, which some were in favor of one and some were in favor of another, was such a non-event because of their unity under the Holy Spirit that we never hear from Matthias ever, ever again. Does that make sense? They were so unified that it was a non-issue. This is why spiritual renewal is important because there are going to be times as leaders in our church where a church board vote doesn't go necessarily the way we think it ought to. But the call of God in those circumstances, in, in those times, and I'm not talking about the exception where there's some type of compromise of biblical proportion. 
I'm talking about we choose gray carpet instead of blue carpet. I'm talking about we choose to fund this instead of that. The call of God of a people who have been spiritually revived and spiritually renewed is a call for unity that we come behind because when we function as a church board, we function as a unit together. That what happens behind closed doors, we pray, we debate, we deliberate, then we vote, and then we come together in unity in mission. See, this is why spiritual renewal is so important when we talk about church growth. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men and women who the Holy Ghost can use, men and women of prayer, men and women mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men and women. He does not come upon machinery, but on men and women. He does not anoint plans, but men and women, men of prayer, women of prayer. My dear friends, this is the call of God in these last days when we talk about evangelism and church growth. I told you the story from Calgary, Alberta. God did amazing things. It's the first time in my North American evangelism experience where our closing night had more attendees than our opening night. And I can attribute it to one thing and one thing only. We had a prayer ministry there like I've never seen before. People praying. People praying. You see, the New Testament church grew largely because each member experienced a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that personal encounter changed them. And here is the key. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You'll remember, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. He had been with his disciples for three and a half years. He died. He rose from the dead. And he spent an additional 40 days with them. And pastor... In that defining moment where Jesus is about to leave and entrust the church to these people. (laughs) What's the first question they ask him? Is now the time you're going to sit on the throne? Because we still got a little bit of that. Because I want to sit on the right and the left. I want to kick these dirty Romans out of here. I I wonder for a moment in Jesus' humanness what he thought. (laughs) But Jesus responded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know. What is it not for you to know? The times or the seasons and what? And it says, and those things in God's power. It is the Greek word exousia, which is those things which come under the authority of God. That's not for you to worry about. Let me put it in the 21st century, by the way. The last election cycle brought out, and I'm not making a political statement right now, and whatever you think happened with the election, that's okay. But let us be clear. Salvation does not come through the President of the United States. 
Okay? By the way, this is important. You go out there and read some things. There are still many, many people that believe that Donald Trump will be placed back in the White House sometime in August. That's a fact that people believe. Now is not the time to make fun of people like that. Now is the time to help those people understand Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. Now is the time to help them understand Daniel chapter 2 and verse 24. God raises up kings and he brings them down. Folks, we can't worry about these things. We will not be saved by a political system. If you happen to be from outside the United States, we will not be saved by a prime minister. We will not be saved by a premier. We will not be saved by an earthly king. The Bible is clear. We will be saved by one. And he is named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so then what does Jesus say to these disciples who are concerned about, are we going to take the throne and kick these Romans out? He says, but you shall receive power. It's a different word there. That word is the Greek word dunamis. It's from where we get our English word dynamite. But literally translated, it is the word enabling power. But you shall receive enabling power when what happens? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be what? Witnesses to me. Now, I need you to look carefully at that. Is the word witness there, which could be a noun or a verb, in that sentence, is it a noun or is it a verb? Think carefully. Okay, you got it, my brother. Say it nice and loud. It's a noun. Why am I emphasizing that? Because a noun is a person, place, or thing. A verb is an action that we do. Jesus is concerned about who we are. Because if he transforms who we are, it will transform what we do. Does that make sense? To be a witness, that means I've been changed. But if all I do is go witnessing, well, you see, just like the radio, I can turn that on and turn that off. So Sabbath afternoon, I'm going to go witnessing. But when I go to the grocery store and the clerk is not working as fast as I think they ought to, I'm not going to be a witness. I'm going to be, well, I'm just going to make sure to give them a piece of my mind. But if I'm a witness, I'm a witness. And for me, I'm a witness when I'm driving on I-66 and the traffic is horrible. I'm a witness when I'm driving on the beltway around D.C. where the traffic is never nice. Bringing it closer to home. I'm a witness when my children don't do what I've asked them to do. I'm a witness when my spouse doesn't treat me the way that I think he or she should treat me. 
I'm a witness. When in the church somebody says something very unkind to me. This is why spiritual renewal and revival is so important. And why it's the first key. You see, as people were baptized, they were filled with the Spirit. They had hearts overflowing with their relationship with Jesus Christ. And that overflow gave them a desire to share about this newfound friend in their life. Spiritual renewal leads to our desire to share our newfound experience. Listen to the passage from Steps to Christ. No sooner does one come to Christ than there is born in his heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. You see, when we are a witness, that means we're a witness all the time. And when people encounter us, something will happen. People will eventually ask you, what's different about you? Like, what's different about you? And that is our opportunity to say, you know, the only thing that's different about me is I have a good friend, and his name is Jesus. And he helps me to be different because at my very core, I'm rotten and there's nothing good about me. So how then are some, what are then some practical steps to experiencing spiritual revival, spiritual renewal? Those three keys are prayer, Bible study, and witnessing. What do I mean by that? Churches are revived when there's a renewed emphasis placed on intercessory prayer. When I talk about this emphasis, I mean this emphasis in both an individual way and a corporate way. What do I mean by that? For me as a person, but also for us as a church. What was Jesus' prayer life like? According to Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, Jesus had a time to pray. Now, I'm going to make all of this intensely practical, and I want to be very clear in what I'm about to say. Sometimes these conversations about Bible study and prayer can be some of the most discouraging moments in our life, because we always tell stories about Martin Luther who prayed for three hours. And some of us are sitting here saying, like, I have a hard time praying for two minutes. And so we're going to walk through some very practical steps. But let's look at the keys. Even Jesus, while he was on this earth, he had a time to pray. He had a place to pray. And Jesus had a method to his praying. Ellen White says these words, Learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. Do we have a time to pray? Do we have a place to pray? When we start talking about prayer and Bible study, those are two key essentials. For my pastors here, 
The praying minister who has living faith will have corresponding works and great results will attend his labors despite the combined obstacles of earth and hell. To my pastors that are here watching online or right here, I want to urge you. It is very easy to find colleagues so you can complain about what's going on. And I understand. There are a number of you that are pastors. I understand. Pastoral life can be very lonely. But let's make sure to talk to the only one who can make a difference. And I mean, it's, and it's a sad testimony for me. I can tell you many a times where I've talked to a bunch of people about a problem I was having, always forgetting to talk to God. <laughs> and then the interesting thing is, is as soon as I talk to God about it, God took care of it. One of the churches I was pastoring, we were having a major, major issue a major issue when it came to the issue of worship and music. I can't even tell you the number of people I talked to. And finally, because it wasn't getting any better. And isn't that a sad thing that I have to say? I finally prayed. But I'm just trying to be real with you. Finally, I prayed. And let me tell you, <laughs> so I had this meeting after I had had this time of prayer where I poured out my heart to God and said, Lord, this is not going well. And so I had, a, I had a meeting with the individual that didn't agree with the direction I wanted to go and really the direction the church wanted to go. And when they arrived, they didn't come alone. They came with reinforcements. And so my meeting that was to be a one-on-one -on -one meeting was now five to one. I had a church secretary pastor in that church and I said to my church secretary, I said, listen, I, if you don't mind, if you don't mind hanging out in your office and sticking around, if I ever start screaming, just call 911. Just a little bit of a joke because I was trying to encourage myself from what was about to happen. And for, for an hour and a half, maybe two hours, the Lord had convicted me to just keep my mouth shut. And for two hours, I just took it. it beat me up bad. <laughs> Not physically. Just really came after me. One of those meetings, Pastor, after you're done, you're kind of like, maybe... Maybe I didn't really hear the voice of God. <laughs> That's how that kind of meeting went. Here's the amazing thing. That Sabbath at church, member after member would come up to me. They'd pull me close in and they'd whisper in my ear, Pastor, don't worry, we got your back. And I can't even tell you the number of people that said this to me. I didn't tell them about the meeting. I don't really know who told them about the meeting. But the Lord took care of it. 
and I didn't have to worry about it. Here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. Five years after that, I had, le- I had, I had not because of that, I had, had a good run at that church and then I eventually you know, was called away to It Is Written Canada, which I've now given you the timing of it all. But anyways, five years later, the individual that I had this contentious moment with, just out of the blue, out of the blue, sent me an e- email and apologized to me for how they had treated me. But we are a witness all the time. And so instead of gloating in such a situation, I simply responded and I said, you know, I want to apologize to you too because I probably could have handled things a bit differently. And now when we see these people, they come up and they hug us. See, God wants reconciliation in his church. Too often we're so right that we're wrong. You following what I'm saying? Spiritual renewal and spiritual revival. We need to pray. Communion with God through prayer and the study of his word must not be neglected for here is the source of his strength. No work for the church should take precedence over this. I want you to underline, highlight, put and plaster. No work for the church should take precedence over this. I need to remind myself of this every single day. To my pastors here, listen, I understand. To lay people, I understand what it is like to be busy. Okay? I work 50% of my time for the Hope Channel as senior evangelist and 50% of my time as president-elect of the Living Hope School of Evangelism, which is the school of evangelism that Mark Finley started in Haymarket, Virginia. And at 47 years old, I learned when your job description says 50-50, that means you have two full-time jobs. I understand what it's like to be busy and I understand what it's like to be pressing and I understand because I am a man of action, I like to get things done. It's hard for me to just sit down and do nothing. But the call of the scriptures and the call of inspiration is we need time for prayer and study. And some of us sitting here right now are saying, but I don't have any time and even if I did have the time, I don't know what to do. So here's what my appeal is to you, my dear friends. For those of you watching online, for those of you listening on the radio, for those of you that will watch sometime in the future, here's my appeal to you. I know there's the stories. Three hours, five hours. I got up at two in the morning. Praise the Lord for all those things, by the way. But when we're sitting here saying, I, 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 don't, I didn't even have five minutes this morning. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. It's very, very simple. Designate a time. I see some younger families in here. That means that you may have to designate time that is very early, prior to the awaking of those that awake before they're supposed to, if you're following what I'm saying. For those that don't have children at home that might awaken us, maybe we need to be awake at a time in which our spouse is not going to deter us from that time. But whatever it is, pick a time. That answer may be different for you than it is for me. And here's where I want you to start. 
If you do not have a devotional experience right now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do to start with. Designate 10 minutes. That's it. Some of you are saying, but that's not enough, Pastor. If I don't have anything, 10 minutes is more than nothing. And during those 10 minutes, I'm not anti-technology. And while there's a lot of good that can be done with one of these, the devil has provided every aspect of distraction he can in our life through this one little device. So if you have to, turn it off. If you have to, leave it in your room. If you have to, throw it in your pool. Whatever you got to do. Are you following what I'm saying? By the way, when we get unattached to our phone, it's such a pleasant experience when you accidentally leave your phone at home. For me, I just say, praise the Lord. That means I have dedicated time to whoever I'm with. By the way, as a side note, when we eat meals, I'm not going to tell you what to do. When we eat meals, we should have a no-phone policy. If you want to get really creative with your friends, put a little basket in the center of the table, have all, everybody put their phone in the basket. And whoever cannot resist and picks up their phone first is the one that pays for lunch that day. It's amazing how these things work. But 10 minutes, undistracted. Undistracted. 10 minutes. No phone. No computer. 10 minutes. And then take your Bible, whatever version you're reading, and start in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is all stories. Not a whole chapter. Just read one section. One story. I don't know about you. I like to write. I like to write with good pens. I like to write with fountain pens. I've got a little notebook. Nothing expensive, but if you want to get a nice fancy journal, I'm sure the ABC has fancy journals. I use a 99 cent college composition book. That's what I have. I'll read the story and then I'll write. And typically, I will attempt to answer three questions. What did the passage say? What is it saying to me? And what is Jesus' invitation for me today? What does the passage say? What is it saying to me? What is Jesus' invitation to me today? And then I pray about those things. In the back of my composition book, I have names that I'm writing down. One of you, one of you came up to me yesterday and you told me about your son. And you were asking me questions about your son who's struggling with the issue of philosophy. Your son's name is in my prayer book now. And I will pray for him often. But just to give you an idea, this morning, 
And my reading, part of my reading was from the book Prophets and Kings. And I wrote this passage down and it impacted me so much that I broke my rules and I picked up my phone and I sent it to my wife as well. I didn't really break the rules I, because I've gotten to a place where I can have my phone next to me and be okay. To his children today, the Lord declares, be strong and work for I am with you. The Christian always has a strong helper in the Lord. The way of the Lord's helping, we may not know. But this we do know. He will never fail those who put their trust in him. That's from uh, Prophets and Kings, page 575 into 576. And I reflect upon that in my journal. I don't necessarily reflect on the entirety of passages and that little passage caught my attention and that's what I reflected on today. 10 minutes. Some of you are saying, I can't do all of that in 10 minutes. Praise the Lord. But if you designate 10 minutes, then you at least have 10. And if that turns into 15 or 20 or 30, praise the Lord. Because then people will always ask me, how long should my devotional be? Long enough. I don't know the answer to that question. That's like asking me, how much food should I eat for lunch? I can give you the FDA, the FDA recommended amount of food that you should eat. But if you're going to go run a mile today, you may need to eat more. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay. Designated time. Just you and Jesus. Ellen White says this in Selected Messages. At our important meetings, these men, the early Advent leaders, would meet together and search for truth as for hidden treasure. I met with them and we studied and prayed earnestly for we felt we must learn God's truth. Often we remained together until late at night and sometimes through the entire night praying for light and studying the word. As we fasted and prayed, great power came upon us. And I know that's one, whoa, they were up all night. But it starts with those, that designated time, 10 minutes. 10 minutes. And then from there, let the Lord build upon that. One of you came up to me, you're from the Goebbels Church, you talked to me. When I was a student at Andrews, I preached a message where I talked about dedicated time. And Mark 135 was my passage. And I'll never forget, someone from that church came up to me and talked to me about how their dedicated time, they knew that the only way they could have that designated time was to be in their car. And so they would drive to the fitness center where they were going to go work out. And then they would sit in their car for 30 minutes and study the word and pray. Whatever it is that works for you, whatever it is, I will end on this slide. Actually, I'm going to do two slides. Prayer initiates revival. 
prayer sustains revival, prayer nurtures revival, prayer follows revival. And I will end with this quote from R.A. Torrey, who was an evangelist from the 19th century. We are too busy to pray. And so we are too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. And so I want this to be a moment of encouragement for us all. And that encouragement is, we look for all kinds of techniques, the right thing to say at the right moment, and that way, somehow, some way, will make us the most effective evangelist in the world. The most effective evangelists in the world which are often lay people, are those who pray much and study much. And so let us today take today's seminar not as just another seminar, but as a time for us to rededicate and reconsecrate ourselves to Christ and following his ways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we are talking about the seven keys to, to, to church growth, We're on this first key and we've been on this first key now for many moments because, Lord, we understand how important this is. And so I pray, I pray, dear God, for each and every person that is here, for each and every person that is online, listening on the radio, or will sometime watch this as an archived message. Father in heaven, may today be the day in which we reconsecrate our heart and our life to you And may today be a day in which we commit to you the first portion of our day, whether it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever that is, that we could come in tune with you to hear your voice. And may you revive our souls. And oh, Father in heaven, Please do a work of revival in each of us that you could then revive our churches and revive our conferences, revive our unions and divisions. And in unity, Lord, may we go forward and take this gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth that then the end would come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.